Welcome to Built to Play, game technology for the arts inclined. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, we scare you with tales of smartphone games and chilling federal laws. And we horrify you with the tale of the missing Hideo Kojima. Plus, we go around the world in 80 days. But first, uh, Armand, stop sucking at Super Mario Brothers. Oh, god damn it. I am not very good at this game, there. or any game, as it turns well. out. <laughs> Game of life. <laughs> yeah, I haven't completely failed that one yet. Damn it. So that's... Oh! <laughs> oh! I keep jumping like right in front of it. Okay, so let's try that again. One more time. Let's try that again. So back in September, Nintendo celebrated the 30th anniversary of the plumber who jumps really high with Super Mario Maker. Super Mario Maker doesn't just let you play complicated levels inspired by different Mario games, it also lets you make them. Daniel, you own a Wii U? I do. And you like Mario games, right? Super Mario World is a better game than Super Mario Bros. 3. Why do you ask? That's controversial, but it's not what we're here to discuss. You've got a Mario level for me to play. I don't know, I'm jumping and I feel like I'm landing like just a little bit behind where I thought I would. So that's just, I think, the physics of Mario 1. Okay. Um, Maybe just because I haven't played a lot of Mario 1. Yeah, like the game does actually replicate the physics pretty accurately. Okay. Uh, so I would that... recommend getting that mushroom, by the way. Okay. Well, it's too late now. I mean, you can go back, but... There's no... Oh, oh. Oh, oh, God. <laughs> it's gonna do come back. <laughs> okay. All right. You got yourself a super mushroom. You're a super Mario. It does make jumps a little easier, honestly. Okay. Oh, oh God. Yeah. So you're not good at this. I, I'm not bad at you it. You are either. also bad at it. You keep jumping directly at the pits. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why don't I just leave this playing thing to you instead? Yeah, this is a Mario 3 level. Uh, this actually, each stage is a different tile set because I want to show them off. So this okay. Mario 3 level is an underground tile set as well. And this level is designed around this mechanic I'll show you right now, falling platforms. Okay. You have to hit that platform to get over these guys, which means you have to be introduced to, to the fact that these platforms can fall. The coins kind of lead you to that invisible block with a tail in it. Mm -hmm. And that will help you with some of the tougher jumps. Again, we see another falling platform. This one with wings, so it falls a little slower, so it's easier for new players. Mm -hmm. Here's another uh, feather, in case, or cape rather, or thing, in case you didn't get it. Again, difficult path mm. with challenges from later levels. So you're kind of door. like, you're, this is like a, a darker level. You've gone into like a coin room. Yeah, this is a free one up for better players who can get up to that gauntlet. Right. Then you once again follow the arrow. Which will land you here. Huh. Here, I gave players a choice between another cape or a fire flower. You seem very keen on giving them power ups pretty regularly. Yeah, I like. Well, I, I felt like it was again to kind of mitigate the fact that I don't have checkpoints. I right. wanted to give you a chance to always refill your health, essentially, because you only sense. really have three health. Um, and again, I wanted here to give players players a choice between the fire flower or the feather, which they might have lost in the earlier gauntlets. Okay. I, a lot of the times when you, a lot of the times in Mario yep, games, I you end up, up having to both get the, you have to get the mushroom first and then the flower yep. and that show up, but you're just dumping in the flower. Yeah. So I, I, I messed up kind of that expert path there by throwing that around, but mm -hmm. let's see, this is again, just a quick gauntlet of, um, there what's it go. called? Of, of uh, falling platforms, just to really, now that you've been accustomed to falling platforms, here's a whole bunch of them without wings, just okay. get through it. So, the first Super Mario Brothers game came out in 1985, and the basic premise of the game hasn't really changed since then. You move to the right, slam an enemy's heads, and skillfully jump between platforms. There have been some changes over the years. New Super Mario Brothers added wall jumps. Meanwhile, Super Mario Brothers 3 added the Tanuki suit, which lets you glide through levels. 
Mario Maker itself has changed since release, added checkpoints, which make harder levels much less frustrating. But the fundamental design strategy remains the same. Which is what we're looking for in these levels. So you're on these, like, basically you're on this airship, you're up there. Yeah. And you could take, again, the upper path by jumping on the bullet bill for points, or you could kind of duck under here for cover to avoid them. I mean, does this kind of then, with, with, the, with what you're doing, like, does it, do you feel that... Mario is better off with with these kind of um, splintered levels, or do you prefer... Well, so this level doesn't split off, but I'll show you what happens. So, mm -hmm. first of all, there's a quick uh, get grab some coins before you enter the next turn. So here's a door. This introduces you the idea that this level is kind of segmented very heavily. Mm -hmm. Another power-up. Here's a cape for you. Yeah. Spinning around. Just gonna grab these coins, just in case, for an extra life, because level four gets really tough. Right. Uh, I know that. You don't. <laughs> I will never know. Yeah, you will never know. Uh, yeah, here's just a quick hitting. Again, introduce you to cannons in a way that can almost never hurt you. And then very quickly, here's the cannons that can hurt you with a quick paratroopa. If I hit one of these paratroopas, ah, dang. Okay, I want to grab one of these shells because it come, it helps with the next part to get rid of these spike tops early. But mm -hmm. I messed up, and now I have to kind of get around these spike tops. And that shell is now going to be really annoying on the way back down. These are some really quick kind of, not pixel perfect. Ah, oh, okay, so that stinks. You have, basically, you, you're rotating a shell around a bunch of spikes, and there's a bunch yeah. of platforms in between, and the shell's bouncing around, you have to dodge it. Yeah. Uh, here, once again, choice of power-ups. Have you messed around with the uh, with the auto-scrolling levels? Uh, I will, yeah, I'll show you an auto-scrolling level, actually, after this. Okay. Uh, choice of power-ups, and then just to quickly introduce you that a Goomba can pop out one of those. So be careful when you mash out power-ups. Okay. Here's a quick double challenge. Now you've got cannons and bills flying at you all at once. Okay, and it's like you venturing through the level, you're kind of thinking yeah. you're going up north, Oop. and there's a bunch of little cans going out through it. Yeah, through little here. cannonballs kind of combined with these spike tops. This seems tough, but you, it doesn't seem like it's outlandish. No, like, this is kind of really, it's oriented around, if you've done the parts before this, you should have the skills to get through this part. Right. Um, it's, it's not like Goombas, ah. homing Goombas coming out of bullet bill cannons. No. Um, yeah, the I would this almost became a shmup like portion where I was gonna give you the, the cloud and you'd have to get through all the all the bullets, but right. uh, I felt that was not really introduced properly. And this is just a quick gauntlet challenge. So you purposely set this up for like a, a group of levels that you yes, intend to These are played. oriented as these levels are designed as an oriented challenge together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then just a quick gauntlet of cannons once again, just to see if you can get it to get the maximum point bonus at the end. Uh, and now finally. My least favorite tile set, but one of the best songs, is the Newsroom Mario Bros. Uh, castle tile set. It just, it, it kind of looks a little ugly, I find. It does, yeah. I, 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 I don't, don't think it's a matter, I don't think it's a fault of the actual, like, New Super Mario Bros. I just think it's like the implementation here is not yeah. great. No. Um, but the music's pretty decent, and you get wall jumping. Yes. This level, this part is not actually oriented around wall jumps. Here's back to the falling platforms now with fast cannons. Okay. On top of Hodaboos, which are going to shoot up from the so ground. So, what, do you, what do you find the advantage of this, this specific? Oop. Aside from the music, what do you find the advantage of this specific tile set? This specific tile set does give you wall jumps, and that's about it. Uh, honestly, mm. the best music is in the Mario Three or World tile sets. Mm -hmm. um, though it does have, I really like these sort of these columned, uh, semi-solid platforms. Right. They felt very. I saw them. They felt very regal and kind of appropriate for the castle. Right. Um, so just to quickly, you see the you see the hammers, so you know you'll be fighting Bullet Bills or Hammer Bros later. Uh, once again, the cannons and uh, some coins. And once again, now we're introduced to cannons, fireballs, and spike tops, but these are blue spike tops, so they're faster. So once again, we're kind of multiplying all the mechanics you've had to deal with before. Quick moving platform. Are you, usually, you are rewarding the player quite a bit here. Yes, because now we get to the tough parts. Okay. Here's a boss fight with Bowser Jr. 
There's no giant axe for you? No, not with Bowser Jr. The axe is up there. You, see, you can actually already see the bridge, and Bowser's fireballs actually make this fight tougher because Bowser's right on top. Right. I mean, what, what would you say are some of your favorite, like, distinctive Oops. Mario levels? Um, like, individually? Yeah. God, that's, that's hard to imagine. I really love world challenge levels, and a lot of these are sort of oriented after world challenge levels in that they kind of give you different paths and options. All right, we took right. out Bowser Jr. A lot of people seem to like three because of its gimmick here levels. I mean, like, no. but th some argue that those are more cohesively designed. Um, but no, world, just... by comparison, is, like, less distinctive. Although I really dig, like, the aesthetic and um, feel of world yes. in particular. World world is probably my favorite look, and I, and I really do like all of its mechanics the best. Uh, I didn't use Yoshi, which is also sort of an advantage of world and this, mm -hmm. who he's not in any other tile sets. Uh, give you quick fire Mario once again. But you can kind of take you, things but... from other tile sets yes. into, into this. But not every tile set. Mm -hmm. uh, so now quickly I introduce you to spike tops that fly. Do the amiibo, um, do the amiibo characters? So like, and we mentioned you can turn to Sonic. Um, yeah. Does he look different in um, like the Mario, th the Mario three version? You and... only can use the amiibos in the Mario one. Ah, uh, okay. So, so they basically replace. So you can't get. So for example, you can't get a cape. Or a feather, a flower. You can't get a tail, a cape, or the propeller mushroom mm. in one, but you can get um, what's it called? But you can get the uh, amiibo mushroom. Okay. Just gonna quick one up because here comes the boss. This is basically a, a shootout gauntlet with Bowser. It kind of takes aside the jumping stuff. Right. Uh, so he has the the destructive platform and it has the yeah fireball. Can you can you? Uh, determine his pattern of attack? Or no, he, you just drop him in, and basically you can kind of determine him with the area you give him. So here he actually kind of, yeah, now I'm kind of stuck, so I've got to get underneath him. Mm -hmm. yeah. He's shooting fireballs out of his mouth in all yeah. directions. Um, you can kind of determine his plan of attack based on how you place him. Right. Uh, because Bowser Jr. is beneath him, actually you also have to listen carefully for Bowser Jr. I'm just going to run through him. Ah. No. Oh, no. This is bad. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, okay, uh, we're going to try this again. I can do this real fast uh, if I just basically, uh, what's it called, uh, speed shield him. Okay. Uh, we got strats. I'm going to just run this back. But yeah, the... the, the so yeah. Um, the mushrooms here really seem to function more as health than anything. Yes, because of the way this works. Like, it's less about the mechanics of what they allow you to do and more about... I don't. I'm not. I can't checkpoint you, and I wanted levels that are actually relatively tough. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be able to refill your health. I know, in like uh, in in world, for instance, and uh, I, uh, I'm pretty sure in new, you could save an item. Yes. Can you have an item in reserve? Unfortunately, not. I, I guess just because you only have four four levels to a world. Right. Uh, yeah. Like I said, the. How long would you say it took you, took you to build this? These took me about all together, hour and a half, two hours. Right. So that's not so bad. So you could put together something like that's a little thoughtful and creative within solid, yeah. um, solid two hours. Would you yeah. say? Yeah. yeah, I don't want that bob off. But then the last one. Let's go kill. All right, and we're just gonna speed shield Bowser. We're not okay. even gonna fight him. I'm just gonna kind of run past him. Yeah. Okay, so you jump on platforms. You go, oh, got caught by him. Yeah. Still got one little thing. Gonna axe there. him. Gone. Yep. If you get close enough to start jumping over him, the cannons kind of push you back, so you have to deal with that. In all the Bowser levels, there's an axe, no matter what yes. the game is. Placing, or well, not all Bowser levels actually. Oh, okay. If in a castle level, it will always end with the axe. Okay. You can place Bowser in any level you want. Right. So that's actually kind of that you can make sort of unique boss fights you wouldn't be able to anywhere where you have to actually fight Bowser in a shootout with fireballs okay. or just get through him. So these are the those are the four levels. Those you are made. the four levels oriented. That is, yeah, first leap, second jump, third flight, fourth finale. 
Uh, and here is my auto scroller called Flappy Mario. Oh God! Uh, you monster! You handed the controller to me. Yep. And now I have to play Flappy. I Mario. hate water levels, and that is why I made this. Oh God! Oh f you! <laughs> Two plants just came out from opposite directions into the middle. Oh. I literally made Flappy Bird. <laughs> All right, well, while we're wrapping up here, yeah. would, what would you say are good tips to make a decent level? Uh, introducing things in a safe environment, introducing uh, ways to just try something new without failing is important. Mm -hmm. Then ramping it up. Introducing mechanics, then combining the mechanics. I gave you falling platforms, then I give you spike tops. Now I give you falling platforms with spike tops. I gave you cannons and fi and fire um, spinning fire bars, now I give you cannons and fire bars. I gave you bullet bills, falling platforms, spike tops, fire bars, then I combine them all for level four, hmm. and now you know how to play all of these parts so they don't feel unfair. Right. Level four doesn't telegraph anything, but that's because everything in level four came from one through three. That makes sense. Um, so I feel like designing a level like that is probably the best way to do it. The, but a lot of this game is focused for online. I'm curious, yeah. can you set up levels in order like that? You cannot, but you can sort of hint at it in the way you upload them. Or you can share it over Twitter with the codes for those levels. It is hard to do that. Individual levels should do that too. I feel like I like to design levels when I put them online half and half. Half to teach, half to be tough. Right. Um... Have you ha, how has the response been to your levels? Have you uploaded uh, online? I've only uploaded Flappy Lamario. Okay. <laughs> oh. And people hated it. People <laughs> just hated it. I believe I, I really agree with um friend of the show, Patrick O'Rourke, who said, uh boy am I bad at designing Mario levels. Flappy Mario was a travesty that made me really rethink where I was coming from and uh, make this world, which I do think is pretty good. But yeah, Mario Maker is a really cool little thing. I, I again I don't know what sixty dollars is worth to you. But in terms of, like, an educational piece of software that'll teach you how to design Mario levels with real feedback from community, it's pretty good. Like, it's, it's really fun, and there's a lot of cool tools in there. Super Mario Maker is available for the Wii U at your nearest video game bodega. Nintendo, the Nintendo, the Nintendo dudes. Yeah, exactly. But Nintendo has been slowly making a move towards mobile. They've been working towards talking about having things on your phone, not just on the DS. Your cellular device. Yeah. So what has so they partnered with DNA? That's D E N A. Um, and finally revealed some of their smartphone game plans? Sort of, kind of, maybe? Basically, after wiggling their eyebrows at us for months, they revealed that they are working on a game called Tomo, which is their first smartphone game. Um, and it's not much of a game. It's more of like... Do you, hey, Armand, do you remember Tomodachi Collection? Yes, that was that 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 one in which Bill Trennan um like worshipped a giant virtual boy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um. So Mitomo is that, but also, do you know what Line is? Um, Japanese messaging service Line. No. Japanese messaging service Line is a popular Japanese messaging service in which you send messages to people and you have stickers that are often based on popular anime or video games that you can purchase with microtransactions. All right. So, for example, they recently released Mario Line stickers, which sold ridiculous amounts and made Nintendo a lot of money. So you can stick a little toad under your message that says, I'll meet you at the cafe at five. Toad. Toad. Yeah. Okay. You know, because 
everybody loves Toad. Fair enough. But so Mitomo is sort of a cross between the two where you create your me, which is that sort of avatar creating system Nintendo's been using since 2006. Yes. Um, they hang around. They interact with your other Mii's on your friend list, and you can send messages between them, which have your Mii's, you you can make your Mii's make emotions to go along with it, and of course have Nintendo stickers that you can purchase. This will be free and have microtransactions. Um, There's not really much of a game to it. It seems like there's a couple prompts that go on in there to like, hey, what do you want to say about this on sort of like a Facebook wall? It's essentially a sort of almost like what Nintendo, um, Nintendo wanted Miiverse to be. A little, it's a little bit more games agnostic, I right. guess. Um, but the, mostly, it's the stuff that they along, announced alongside Mitomo that's actually more interesting than Mitomo itself. And that's the Nintendo account system and my Nintendo. So Nintendo account system seems like a replacement for the Nintendo Network ID, which is their con- basically their console ID and their like DS ID that yeah. kind of runs so, like, between the both. You used to have your eShop account on 3DS. And no account on the Wii. Yeah. And then they had the Wii U had accounts. And so they brought those accounts over to 3DS. And now they're linked. But you don't share a wallet on the eShop or purchase history or save data or anything, really. So, wait. (laughs) (laughs) The Nintendo Network ID is meaning. All it is is sharing your Miiverse posts across platform. That's useless. Okay. Exactly. Which is why we have the Nintendo account system now. And but they don't worry, but they'll promise that it's going to be used in movie movie theaters and theme parks. What does that mean? Uh, Nintendo lands. Who knows? <laughs> no one knows what that means. Like, you will go to see the Pokemon movie and sign it in with your Nintendo account, and you'll get maybe you'll get a special Pokemon. Maybe that's how it works. All right. I don't know. Essentially, it means that your save data will now be tra- will be able to be transferred between consoles, hopefully. Your character data will be able to transfer between consoles, hopefully. Your purchase history and your wallet will actually 100% confirm. The rest of it is them sort of saying, we hope this is possible. Um, essentially, we'll see how the NX framework is designed, but this likely won't be happening on Wii U and 3DS. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, the Nintendo, uh, where is it? My Nintendo is a replacement for Club Nintendo, which is named after the rewards program Nintendo had before Club Nintendo, which was called My Nintendo. Perfect. Don't think about it too hard. <laughs> Basically, it improves over its dead brother by letting you purchase uh, DLC and coupons for games in addition to, um, you know, physical goods that My Nintendo was known for that Japan will definitely have better versions of than us. I mean, what were some of the, you went back with, uh, Club Nintendo, um, what were some of the the better stuff that Japan got than we did? What did what did I mean? Give give me a sampling of the comparisons. And... So we got a popular example was the uh, 3DS game cases, a very convenient thing to store nine of your 3DS games. Another example, Animal Crossing, uh, like hand towels. Yeah. Uh, I had a set of Super Mario Hanafuda cards. Fair enough. Uh, calendars. Um, what did Japan get? Uh. M- Actual metal Mario Kart trophies that looked like the trophies you get for... So, like, each cup in Mario... Like, you have the star cup, and there's, like, a fake star trophy. So they had real star trophies. You could get, like, a set of all of them. Wow. (laughs) So... that, so they, like, worked on stuff. Yeah, they didn't just, yeah. like, buy something from Mad Cats like, and then cafe. email it. They didn't yeah. go to, like, Cafe Press. <laughs> and like, hey, this is a Nintendo mug. No, you got, like, real stuff. Hey, check it out. This is a diorama of Mario, Link, and Mar- Mario, Luigi, Peach, and Bowser under a glass case that kind of turns on its own. All right. So look forward to having be, being envious of Japan all yeah. over again. Uh, the other stuff that's going on, uh, Mitomo will be the first of five apps that Nintendo plans on releasing between March of 2016 and March of 2017. Um, they also said that they're saving Mario for a later date, and he isn't planned for any mobile games yet. 
they didn't qu- want to, quote, risk Mario on an unproven platform, which is sort of crazy. <laughs> like, I under- what? So, I, I th- we talked about this a little bit. I woke up this morning to, like, 17 messages telling me that, oh, God, Nintendo ruined their mobile debut. It's like, does nobody know? I think traditional gamers are very separated from what sells and people play on yeah. mobile. A Mario game probably wouldn't sell very well on mobile. A Mario-branded no. game would, but a Mario game, as we know it, would not. Well, the problem is you the controls aren't there for what a what mobile devices are, right? Is that Mario yeah. requires, like, very pre- pre- precise jumping. It requires, like, a lot of forethought. And, like, unless the levels are much shorter than they run in the game, they're not great for, like, mobile use, which is kind of, like, very start and stop. Exactly. And, a lot of the things about mobile games is that they're they're kind of like mind numbing, not in a bad way, but just like stuff that is repetitive and ab- you're able to kind of do not necessarily blindfolded, but you know, it's they feel more like things you do while you are doing something else. And 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 plus, like think about it from a resource perspective. If Nintendo wants to make a Mario game, let's say they want to make a good Mario game, put in the effort to make this start and stop simple Mario game. Well, why doesn't that dev team just make a proper Mario game using those exact same amount of resources for a console where they'll make a better game? Nintendo's never has always been a company that focuses on quality, to often to their own detriment. Yeah. And it's like, why wouldn't that team just make a good Mario game? Same thing is true of a Zelda, of a Pokemon. Like, we're not going to be seeing those kinds of games on on these smartphone platforms. We'll probably see games branded in that style. Like, we're already seeing that in tech, um, the, the, the Pokemon... Well, what was it? Find the stuff in the world. Yeah, and exactly. Pokemon po- Go, right? Pokemon like, Go, that's We're going to see Pokemon-branded things, Mario-branded things. I'm willing to bet we'll see a WarioWare-style game, like a collection of minigames. Yeah. That would fit really well. Yeah, I mean, like, WarioWare was essentially, like, mobile games before they were mobile games. Right. And so I feel like that kind of stuff is the stuff we'll see out of this. You're not going to be seeing, like, I, again, I just don't think this li- like line, which does insanely well in Japan and is starting to do really well here among nerds, um, meets essentially a a Tomogachi, that'll do really well. Yeah. That'll that'll sell in Japan. It's not like a surefire hit over here, but that will make money in Japan. Like, it's a guaranteed moneymaker. And the thing is, for a long time, there were, like, Japanese developers. What they would do is they would have games that were, like, definitely going to sell well in Japan. Like, guaranteed. And they may not sell quite as well in the United States. So, for instance, like, uh, this, I mean, this game was brought over, but like Dragon Age, Dragon Age, uh, Dragon Quest Nine, yes, right. That game was, it did okay here, like it was re- respectable yep. turnout, but like every third person in Japan bought that game, right. So, but even that was Dragon Quest, which is a long-running franchise. Let's mm-hmm. go back to like the Tomodachi collection that sold great in Japan. Yeah, they brought it here like three years later as an afterthought, and it did fine. Like, yeah, I think it sold a million copies, which is not, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at, but it had already done its like four or five million in Japan, which was fu- which was what it needed. And Japan used to do this way more frequently, right? Yeah. Like a lot of these games, that was how the Japan market operated. Was that look, we can sell to Japan, Japan we'll do gangbusters and then you know the rest of the world you know maybe we'll do a translation and it'll do okay over there um but as development slowly moved towards here you'd stop seeing that with console yeah. games but with mobile you can still totally accomplish that, that yeah. because the the overhead is so much lower the overhead is so much lower and the japanese market is still very different yeah. in terms of what they want i mean Puzzle and Dragons only recently made the plunge over here, and it began. Now that they're they're over, it's not like they, I don't think they've been doing as well in the West as they have been in Japan. Oh, so absolutely not. The yeah, this this whole thing like you, 
I think my favorite thing when somebody pitched me was just like, well, why doesn't Nintendo just make Sonic Runners but with a Mario skin? It's like, Sonic Runners is terrible. Yeah. Sonic Runners is atrocious. It's not a good game. It's just not. And it's laden down with awful microtransactions. I have a feeling the rest of the games we'll see at Nintendo will be like $5 small games. Stuff that they've been doing, like the stuff on the eShop, but even simpler. I mean, one thing they could do is like, what was the uh, the Rusty's old school baseball or something? Yeah, Rusty Rusty Slugger. Rusty Sluggers. Rusty Sluggers, uh, baseball, something, something, where you could haggle with a with, with haggle with a sad, deadbeat dad dog. I mean, and that kind of framework fits like Nintendo's operating uh, like it, in the sense that like it makes you feel bad for not buying things. Exactly. Which is, uh, which is interesting, at least. Which is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> this guy, computer is trying to guilt me into purchasing things from it because this dad hasn't seen his kid in years and he just <laughs> wants to make him happy. Nintendo is a monster of a company. Nintendo's awful. Anyway. Um, Speaking of monsters of companies. Oh, I just want to mention the one last thing. Oh, okay. They, did, they also didn't say anything about the NX in case you were wondering. Nothing. But speaking of monsters. Speaking of monsters of Speaking companies. of monsters and saying absolutely nothing. nothing. <laughs> All right. So... You, I mean, I think it's we're on the records of being um, spectators of Hideo Kojima. Spectators is definitely a word I would use. Yeah, we're uh, we're very we're very ogler oglers oglers yeah oglers. peeping toms of <laughs> peeping Hideos yeah peeping Hideos um, of uh, Hideo Kojima is uh, so he so Hideo Kojima has left Konami right I mean like he he, um, went, on, well, he went on vacation but the uh, what well, sorry he hasn't gone on vacation he's like let he he left the company he's like has some kind of like. Uh, licensing agreement or a, a non-compete where he's just not going to be around until December or something. And all of his names got off like a bunch of the games that he worked on, right? It, it's not, you don't need to, he's gone, no question about it. No, he's on vacation. What? <laughs> so, what? yeah, after Kojima very kind of publicly, not, well, okay, publicly in a secret sources to hold everybody yeah. kind of way, Koj that Konami, um, you know, close sh- is shutting down AAA game development. They got rid. They close. They stopped. Uh, P- they stopped Silent Hills. They took down PT. They forced Metal Gear Solid Five to come out early, like earlier than Kojima wanted it to. They took his name off the promo materials. They shut down Kojima Studios LA. They shut down. Uh, they like spied on his employees. There was no internet at Kojima Productions. Um, so after all of that, Kodami says it was all just a funny misunderstanding. Oh, just a goof. <laughs> just, just a, oh, that, just all hilarious. Uh, according to a comment given to Japanese website Tokyo Sports by Konami spokesperson, Hideo Kojima hasn't left. He's just on vacation. Yeah, so, but, I mean, there, but there was, like, a farewell party, according to, uh, I mean, like, the new, of all places, I just, I don't want to compare, like, the prestige of publications, but um, when I hear Tokyo Sports, I don't exactly think of esteem when I hear versus when I hear the New Yorker, which is where apparently Simon Parkin wrote an article that, um, what was it, uh, Konami? Uh, Konami par- had a farewell party, party, that no major executives attended. Yes, or knew was happening. Like Konami didn't know what was happening. Yeah. It's sort of like there's even a picture of all these people gathered around Kojima, leaning awkwardly, like holding up drinks, like toasting Kojima, and there's just like. It seems like it just happened in a hallway. <laughs> I mean, that does sound like Konami style. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I mean, there's two places you go for your Kojima sources at this point, right? right. You go to the New Yorker <laughs> for the hard facts, and you go to us for the analysis and spin. Exactly. No, there's only really yeah. two places. There's for only this two stuff. places for your Kojima. Welcome to Kojima to the Kojima Corner. It's us <laughs> and the New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, if there's, if there's only two places on the internet you're going to check for your video game news, it's one of the, the longest-running uh, magazines in the in North America. Right. 
and, and the, the best podcast the in the best universe. podcast ever made by humans or monkeys yeah the best video game po- radio show in toronto absolutely yeah i think that's as easy that as is 100% something we can take <laughs> we are 100% the best video game radio show in toronto <laughs> i definitely don't think we have to fight for that one in any case um it says that konami had no idea what the party was for even though there are fo- po- photos of the party and People definitely were drinking out of red solo cups while Kojima awkwardly leaned against the wall. So, I mean, like, is is Kojima with Konami, maybe? He's been with the company for 29 years. I feel like he's got to stick around for one more just to make, like, an even 30. Maybe that's the secret. Maybe that's... Um, maybe there are two Kojimas. Here's my theory. <laughs> Konami has realized that Hideo Kojima's their most saleable property. And they, even if he leaves, they need another one. So they've cloned him. But, well, I, I think... L- Les directeurs terribles. <laughs> Damn it, you beat me. I was going to So he has... There's, there's, there's uh, Solid Kojima, Liquid Kojima, and Solidus Kojima. Who is actually the president of Konami. <laughs> who's been doing all of this to get back at the original. That would be an amazing twist in the end is that the president of Konami has been Kojima this whole time. There's also the distinct possibility that Kojima's just accrued a lot of days off in his last couple of months of crunch and he's technically stickled with the company. He just hasn't run out of vacation time yet. But I mean, there's also been a report that he has a non-compete that lasts until December, which yeah. I mean is an amazingly short time for um, a, a non-compete. non-compete. But it's still like, it's still been But then said. again, technically he did leave like when? In, in, in July? Yeah. So... I mean, he 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 left before, like right when the game went gold. From yeah, whatever that means. But the um, so I mean, where we've all we've, we've kind of touched on this. What do we want Kojima to do next? What do we want him to to become where a permit? Where do we want Kojima to go? Here's the question. Yeah, do we want Kojima to keep making video games? I mean, probably. I just I don't know what given this. Do the, you want a film directed or no. written by Hideo Kojima? I don't think he's actually that like. Despite his desire to to be a director of some kind, he's not a good enough writer. Like, no, he's not. He doesn't actually have that good a concept. Which, he knows he knows John Carpenter films quite well. Did you see? Well, I didn't put this in the news this week, but it should be mentioned that uh, John Carpenter recently did an interview where he said that while he did sue uh, Luke Besson, Lo- Luke Besson for lockdown, uh, lockout, lockout, uh, because it was a rip off of Escape from New York, he did not sue Hideo Kojima for Metal Gear Solid because Kojima was a nice guy, yeah, <laughs> which I love. That's great. A plus plus. He actually gave um he actually gave uh, Kojima just offhandedly the right to use the name Snake yeah. uh, at one point a couple of years ago. So after he'd already been doing it for yeah, like yeah. decades. Yeah, yeah. Twenty nine years. <laughs> um I mean the problem is I don't think Kojima could ever work on like an indie project. Oh it, no, he's too big. Yeah, and I don't maybe just join Quantic Dream. I mean it's not like I it. feel like if we get a game written by David Cage directed by Hideo Kojima. Yep. We got ourselves some business there. What if Hideo Kojima was directing Detroit, the game about robots with feelings that we'll get to later? <laughs> you know what? I want to save if... my emotions about Detroit. We'll get to Detroit. Right. Okay, but here's my here's my thing. I've been arguing for years that I've wanted Nintendo to do a Freaky Friday thing where they let other developers like work on their properties, yeah. and Nintendo works on other people's properties. I like, for example, giving Dark giving From Software Zelda for a year, giving right. you know, um, giving Atlas Pokemon for a year. That'd be really cool. I want Nintendo. Here's the thing: there are two th- games that I want Nintendo to give Hideo Kojima to to, to to try. Either one's fine. I want Hideo Kojima's Metroid mm-hmm. because he will Obvious. make a he will make a crazy other M. Yep. Or going off the stel- the, the the stealth base management, the stealth management kind of thing. I want Hideo Kojima's Pikmin. 
That would be interesting. Tales of Tsushima is Pikmin. Which is all a game about the morale. Because it's still a game about the, mor- the moralities of war <laughs> and sending soldiers off to their death. Quite, yeah, I mean, quite callously, so yes. Pikmin can be a video game about video games. It's true. It's funny how Pikmin started as Miyamoto being like, I like gardening, and now it's a game about war. And, and now it's a game about war and death and how war never changes, mm-hmm. and the apocalypse has taken all of Earth's people, and you are now small and piecing back together the ruins. It's crazy how dark Pikmin is. <laughs> Pikmin's not dark. It's a cute game. It's a great game, which is why I want Hideo Kojima to ruin it. Speaking of the dead, um, <laughs> it looks like... Speaking of James Joyce. Yeah. <laughs> um, it looks like a few games are coming back from it. So, sure. okay, have you, have you ever loved anything quite as much as Star Wars Galaxies? I mean, my firstborn child? <laughs> you have a child? Yes, it's called Star Wars Galaxy. <laughs> it's called Mist Online. Did you? How much did? You, have you ever wanted to to leap back into the original EverQuest, which I feel like you might be able to do anyway? I think you still can actually. Yeah, Sony's weird. Um, and Mist Online was a video game, I guess. Mist so, Online was definitely a video game where people did like people played tour guides in Mist Online. Video games are weird, guys. I love Mist Online. It's, someone they had to. You know what? Those people had to go somewhere before Second Life. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was post-Second Life, actually. Really? Yeah. Neat. Okay, so... That was like 2003. Someone of the U.S. government um, wanted to play those games, and apparently now we're all better for it. Sort of. What is going on? So a ruling from the U.S. Library of Congress has altered the fair use laws surrounding video games under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, meaning that game preservationists can alter existing games to make them work with new online servers when when they can't connect to old ones that no longer exist. Which we actually had an interview about from from quite a few episodes. Let's go. Say you turn on Madden 11 because you want to see if you beat the odds for that season's Super Bowl. You want to play as that year's Pittsburgh Steelers and crush an online player as the actual winner. The Packers will set up shop at the 41-yard line. You hit online multiplayer and then... You have lost your connection to the EA servers. Please make sure your Ethernet cable is connected. You will be unable to access any online features until you sign in again. Nothing. It doesn't connect. There are no other players online. And that's not because people have completely lost interest. The publisher, Electronic Arts, took those servers down. The online part of that game doesn't exist anymore. Which happens a lot. EA's FIFA and NHL 11 games are down. The more players you add, the bigger problem it becomes. Sony shut down their first Star Wars online role-playing game because it lost a ton of players. NCSoft bulldozed City of Heroes when it couldn't afford to keep up that superhero game's servers. To some extent, there's nothing we can do about that. Multiplayer games require a lot of players to be profitable, and companies will shut down games that aren't making money. But museums and archivists want to preserve all media. And there's more than a few players out there who want to see these older games stick around. Madden players tried to sue EA in 2013 for shutting down Madden 11's online mode, which they did only two years after its release. So what can an organization or community do? One option is buy a private server and try to replicate that game's original code. 
or you could if it weren't illegal. The best way to start is unfortunately by backing up a teeny bit and talking about the kind of kinds of things that DMCA 1201 uh, prohibit. And what DMCA 1201 prohibits is circumvention of technologies that effectively control access to a copyrighted work. And through a series of decisions, courts have decided that this includes many of the copyright protections on video games, but also parts of video games that we wouldn't necessarily really consider copyright protections, like the protocols between uh, client and server. That's Kendra Albert. She's a law student at Harvard, currently working with the Electronic Frontier Foundation on a petition. The goal? To make an exception to the DMCA Section 1201 so that people can preserve online games. How did you end up partnering with the EFF to file this petition? Sure. So I was actually an intern at the Electronic Frontier Foundation over the summer. I was assigned to work on the DMCA 1201 uh, exemptions, and my boss said, hey, we have like a list of other things that might be relevant for exemptions. Would you want to take a look and see if there's anything you're interested in? And I've been an MMO player for a really long time, and a lot of the MMOs that I loved and spent my early years playing, or at least my teenage years playing, have actually been shut down, City of Heroes being one of them. So I'm really familiar with sort of that like kind of existential angst of like, you know what I would really like to play right now? City of Heroes. In the United States, the DMCA, or the Digital Media Copyright Act, is the big overarching copyright law meant to cover all digital works. Canada has a similar law, the Copyright Act. And has a similar clause, 41.1, where it is an offense to, quote, circumvent a technological protection procedure. We identified um, sort of a problem that's been caused by how courts interpret this language for two sort of groups that are overlapping, but kind of a little different in their concerns. One is players who want to play multiplayer games that they have lawfully purchased. And as you may know, um, companies, in fact, shut often multiplayer service, services after sort of a series of time. For sports games especially, this can be as little as like a year and a half after you bought the game, there will no longer be multiplayer servers. But this also affects a lot of games more broadly, especially because in 2014, GameSpy, who was one of the primary third-party server providers, um, shut down, taking a ton of games with them. We actually include a list, I think it's over 100, in the exemption of games that were the servers were shut down in just 2014. And this includes really popular stuff like Mario Kart for Wii. So one of the wonderful things about the games community is that they've actually, gamers have stepped up and decided to help solve this problem by often in many cases spending huge amounts of time reverse engineering their server protocols to be able to run multiplayer matches. That's the kind of thing we want to encourage as gamers, like, you know, working to make sure that they keep the games they love alive, and that's really important. The other community that's been impacted by this DMCA 1201 pro prohibition is archivists and preservationists. We've had some folks from the Internet Archive sign on. We've had some folks from MADE, which is a video game museum in Oakland, testifying as to how their work has been inhibited by DMCA 1201. But often what they need to do in order to get games sort of workable for the next generation and workable for the future is deactivate the sort of authentication call that the game might make or other sort of checks the game might perform in order to make sure it's on, on the right hardware or, you know, reaching out to a server. And game companies often really aren't aware of the consequences of shutting off these servers. We actually saw a really dramatic example of this when 2K shut off, I think it was the NBA 2014 servers, um, and actually wiped everyone's single player saves in the process. So these game companies don't necessarily actually really understand the dependencies upon these like online authentication or online multiplayer servers. Um, so when archivists are going in and trying to 
preserve the game so people can play it later. They often have to sort of like make changes to the game, not like sort of traditional modding sense, but just so that people can run it. So you don't just need to be a fan of MMO or sports games to be impacted by this. Especially since the trade association that represents EA, Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft wants to keep it that way. The Entertainment Software Association, or the ESA, has responded to Kendra's petition. They don't want the exception to pass. Why? Because then it would apply, quote, Hacking, an activity closely associated with piracy in the minds of the marketplace, is lawful. So the kind of reverse engineering and modification you have to do of the protocols um, in order to keep these serv- like these games from reaching out to a server, you're not modifying like the core copyrighted elements of the game. Like, so one of the complicated things about copyright is that different sort of elements are given kind of a different weight in the way that you think about how uh, they're treated for fair use purposes. And so reverse engineering of these protocols and modification of these protocols in order to allow players to continue to play, we argue in our petition, and I believe are the kind of fair use that are encourage innovation and allow for players to just you know basically do what do what they were doing before. And I think the thing that often gets left out of this conversation, if our exemption is granted and video game companies would prefer that players not reverse engineer their protocols, they are welcome to keep the servers alive for you know the duration of time where people want to play the games we're not advocating some sort of right that like immediately kicks in as soon you know as soon as a game is six months old literally this is just so that players can keep playing games that have been abandoned the esa seems to be coming at this from the perspective of someone who made a very nice refrigerator um it's a product it's meant to last about 10 years and that's it you throw it out when it's done why are games perceived this way especially from the position of these companies Yeah, I think it's really hard because I think often the games industry is really short-sighted in how it treats these cultural works. There's the Supreme Court case, Brown versus Entertainment's Merchants Guild of America. I think that's what it is. Brown versus EMG. And one of the things that the Supreme Court, you know, buys and that the video game industry was arguing in that case is that, like, games are a form of art. They're protected by the First Amendment. They're, like, really important cultural works. And I think part of what comes with that argument, at least for me, is the recognition that, like, you know, because something is an important cultural work, because this, these works are things that, that change people's lives, that change, like, society, and they're a form of art, we have to sort of take a more stewardship approach to them rather than just worried, worrying about be, making the next buck. And I think, for me, what really, one of the most poignant examples of this is where football players have now sort of grown up playing Madden. There's this instance in which one uh, football player basically ran down the end zone to run out the clock um, before like scoring the touchdown because he knew no one could like was going to be able to keep him from scoring the touchdown and when a reporter asked him like where did he learn to do that right? he said oh I learned that from Madden right like I like I do that in Madden that's why I did that here to think that like the future would be able to understand Madden multiplayer play where like this might guy might have learned this technique right is I think would really inhibit our ability to understand this like this form of culture I remember playing City of, City of Villains in particular I had a controller type <laughs> character and um part of that what made that game unique was the community that was around it that there there were these people um there is there an element of futility in that emulating these games? I mean, like, we can get these games back, but we're never really going to get those the community back. No, it's true, right? I mean, I don't... But I think that at the same time, 
being able to really understand what it was like to play these games is so fundamental to understanding like the evolution of game mechanics or the evolution of game criticism and the you know you may never play with the original people you played with like you can never go back to that moment in time um and you know honestly if i played city of heroes today i'd probably be like oh the graphics are terrible because that's kind of what we're conditioned to say right but i think for me the idea of of being relegated to showing like gameplay videos of uh, some of these games or the other some of the other methods of preservation that are suggested in lieu of allowing people to sort of archive them, um, people to continue playing multiplayer, uh, just don't capture like the parts of it that were really powerful to me at the time that I played. What elements would you say that were really powerful? I the weirdest MMO player ever. I liked to solo everything, so I like would not play with other people. I would just kind of run around, but I just loved to explore wor- these worlds and to come back to them. I think part of what's so powerful about it is I remember like the first, I think it was called like Dunes of Flame, the EverQuest 2 expansion where it was like the first desert. And I like remember being like, oh my God, there's like sand everywhere. And I would love to like go back and see that. And maybe I I think EverQuest 2 may be still up, so maybe I could. Um, My roommate actually inspired by this, the research I was doing, went back and played a game that seriously played in middle school right like he went back and found it and he found his old login and he logged back in um and like for him he was like i remember how to play like i remember the controls and that was just like those moments are really powerful to me and i think they really capture what's so amazing about video games um and that's why it's really really important to me that we don't lose them Okay, so to give you the update, this has been um, all fixed up, but there is one caveat. Yes. Uh, it, turn- it basically turns out that only games that would be adversely affected by server shutdowns from a multiplayer perspective can be altered. This essentially actually counts out most MMOs, which store all their player content on developer servers, and thus building your own servers wouldn't actually fix anything. That's unfortunate. Yes, but it does mean that you will have stuff for, like, older first-person shooters, older RTSs, um, and very specifically keeping the old DS Wi-Fi services alive, which has been this weird shadow op taken on by uh, really hardcore Nintendo fans, is now perfectly legal. So Nintendo, they, don't, they don't have to worry about getting their pantsuit off of them. Uh, the EFF says they're going to work to extend the law to multiplayer games while they work on supporting a bill that will let Americans legally unlock their cell phones. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Thanks, EFF. So, uh, good job for everybody, except for you, ESA. We're very disappointed in you. (laughs) At their core, a lot of character-based video games are really about one thing. Movement. You're always looking to get from one place to another, whether you're walking, gliding, running, swimming, flying a fighter jet, or using your hair to launch you into the sky, games have to give you a means to close the distance between you and your objective. It's not hard to look at games as like a travel journal, then, listing people visited and sightseen. But some games look at that sense of travel more explicitly. Like 80 Days. 80 Days is an adaptation of a Jules Verne novel around the world in 80 days. The book's been adapted into plays, at least four movies, several TV shows, and a board game. Each of those mediums have their own way of looking at Phileas Fogg's and Passepartout's quest to travel from London around the globe. Are you suggesting, Mr. Stewart, that I should journey around the world in 80 days? I am, sir. But of all these mediums, it might be best suited to a game. Because at its core, Around the World in 80 Days has the basic premise of a video game. Start here, go there, and arrive before time runs out. Gentlemen, this is really absurd. Now, shall we go on with the game? Which is a cool theory and all, but just in case we called up the guys who actually worked on the game. 
my name is Joseph Humphrey, and I uh, was the kind of the technical director and art director, I guess you could say. Uh, I'm John Ingold. I'm the, the narrative director, and I suppose the game design director. I'm Meg Giant, and I was the lead writer on, on 80 Days. Is there anything inherently about travel, about um, that that kind of uh, exploring, that works for um, an interactive story told in a game? You know, it's it's an enormous world that we have in eighty days, and and each playthrough can be so vastly different. Um, but if we kind of, but if each one of them had to be built of these kind of bigger blocks, I think it would be a, a much harder for us to write, certainly. But because they're kind of broken up into journeys and cities that you can kind of piece together. I mean, eighty days. The book itself is written quite a lot like that. It's very, it's very incidental, um, and kind of there are there are complete stories to be found in kind of different cities or different pockets or different journeys that you tell. And so we very much kind of use that that approach in in the way that we decided to to um, to write it. And I think it works for us because it gives you a little bit of kind of serendipity and a little bit of luck, and it allows for a kind of sense of I don't know surprise in each playthrough. So you never quite know. Um, what might be lurking around this corner or whether talking to this person in this bar uh, might unlock a new route or whether you might get kidnapped by nuns, um, you know, as you're kind of wandering around Madras. Uh, and I think that that lends a real, real sense of kind of suspense uh, and interest to it, which is, you know, which kind of works for the interactive form. But, yeah, I think for me the thing I really like about it is it, it really builds in the sense of progress. Okay. Game players are just generally obsessed with progress and making progress, and this game is a way of taking that sense that you're constantly going somewhere and getting somewhere and being able to look back on your route and seeing how you got there and what you did, but also making that exploratory at the same time. Mm. So you get that the joy of exploring, but without that sense that you're not always moving towards something, and that that's quite a nice duality to have, which you get in a tra travel, it's actually quite difficult to generate in, in normal life, because normally if you, if you want to explore something, you just sit there for ages exploring it, and you lose momentum. So it was, it was quite a nice affordance, really. It is, is a text adventure, so you do get to choose your path along the way. You can go through China, parts of Africa, and you can even hop through Canada. I think one of the reasons why it's so f it's fun to play is that the player never quite knows which kind of random encounter or which conversation or which you know, city they're going to explore is going to unlock a kind of mechanical advantage or a new route. Um, and so there's this real sense that kind of, you know, you're playing the game and, and part of it, is you're, you're searching for kind of mechanical advantage and strategic advantage. Um, but there's also the, the kind of just the joy of like discovering the story or following a plot line. But the, both of those kinds of rewards are, are mixed in and you can't predict which sort of reward you're going to get from any given choice. Um, and I think there's a real kind of tension um, to that for the player. Yeah, um, yeah that, that really is the heart of the game as well. And we definitely have players who don't like it because it's very difficult to game and very difficult yeah. to strategize. Mm -hmm. But I kind of think that's what makes it different. Though. That's what makes it unusual. If you want to play a cold strategy game, this probably isn't it. But, but hopefully it's a good example of the, of the other. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think it makes exploration and discovery and the content kind of much more integrated with, with the mechanics of the game mm. and the strategy of the game. Um, and yeah. I think, yeah, you know, and I think it would be much more usual to separate them out more. But the fact that they're intertwined is, is what's interesting. Yeah, that was the, one of the the biggest things that we've that we've always tried to do is find ways to interlink the story and the game layers, so that the narrative and 
the kind of the strategic part of the game really mesh together and, and um, so when you do something within the game make a strategic decision it's reflected by the kind of the colorful text that describes what what's happening um, and likewise something that you read in the text has an effect on the game itself so that it, they really feel one and the same you, there's that whole classic argument isn't there that you you can't have narrative and gameplay at the same time. But narrative gets in the way of gameplay, and kind of, I guess, our argument has always been, well, not if you build both of them from the ground up to work together, but you've really got to do that. And it's and it's difficult, and but finding opportunities to to kind of hook them together uh, can be really rewarding. Actually, well, I think that's partly why you know. I mean, I, I always remember when we went into playtesting. There's that great moment, John, where you were playtesting. And there was a section on a train which you had written, and you managed to you were you and on your playthrough were kicked off the train in a sequence that you had written because <laughs> as you played it, you know that you kind of went with the story, and it was natural for your sort of passepartout to mouth off to the conductor, and you got kicked off the train. <laughs> I was so annoyed as well because I was trying to get somewhere to test another bit of story and I got thrown in the middle of Russia and I couldn't do it. I think that was the bit where I thought, oh wow, okay, maybe this is really going to work because if you, who has actually written that bit and, and who is probably sick of it and knows it like the back of your hand, can still get caught up in the story and the tension and the mechanics and the countdown to the extent that you know you'll just kind of go with it, then that's really exciting. It's, it's either it's a good game or I'm incredibly forgetful. It's one of the two. But that that is a, a generalizable thing that happens actually when we develop these games. Is we we end up when we when we really try hard to test things. Um, you you have to read the story in order to make the right decisions, but because you're reading it and you, you kind of get into it, you end up making the same decisions over and over again. So part of the game kind of gets gets left untested unless someone else plays it because you just, you literally can't bring yourself to make certain decisions because you get emotionally involved. By the end of the game, regardless of the source material, you often do have your own story to tell. The ones that come up when people describe the game are pretty much always the same four and they're always about characters. People love um, uh, the, ro the brief fling in your leaves. They love it's always the romance, isn't yeah. it? Or, or the, the very dramatic... I think the only other one that always comes up is, is the boxing match. Yeah. I was thinking I was thinking any kind of near death experience. Oh yeah, you're right. Any yeah, time where you right. have a like a genuine like close connection with fog, I yeah. think people get really genuinely emotional yeah. about yeah, that. That's true. Yeah. And it's it's kind of interesting because I think one of the things that we one of the ideas we had going into OT Days was that narrative is really about character and most games are terrible at allowing you to interact with characters. They just don't actually let you do that at all. And that's why a lot of game narratives aren't very compelling. But Bioware get away with it because they've got loads of characters and that kind of thing, Telltale, of course. And I think it's almost a proof of that, that the, when you ask people what they did, they don't remember speeding up that engine by piling in more coal mm. or buying a pair of gloves. What they remember is they met this person and they thought they were wonderful and then they went away, which now has nothing to do with gameplay at all. But mm. just that moment of a, of a human being kind of emerging from the gameplay just for a bit. And that's lovely. That's really lovely. Um, no, you're so right, because people will rarely mention even where they are, or, you know, I think the only, the only invention that is ever mentioned is, is the walking city, I think. But like, apart from that, yeah. basically, kind of where they are, what they're, what kind of device they're driving, um, you know, what the plot is, rarely matters. It's, oh, did you it's know? 
It's yeah. all like fog is quite annoyed with me. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one thing. That yeah, no, that happens a lot. That's it's kind like, of like, so really, really irritating. With the Russian spy and, oh my God, how could she do that? Or mm. um, Delivering a baby on the banana boat to San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, John, John threatened to rewrite that to make it much more realistic. <laughs> let's, let's, leave it, let's leave it with some Victorian sensibilities. <laughs> but 80 days still doesn't quite capture the realities of travel, even if you do have to keep track of your money and time. Megan and Joseph recently came back from vacation, and they realized that the one major thing 80 days misses out on is waiting. Yeah, I think it's it's really worth noting that when you're traveling, you spend a lot of time not doing anything at all, yeah. which is quite hard to yeah. So you describe narratively. I guess you have to create things that happen on those journeys. That if you were to really go on an ocean liner across uh, the Atlantic or the Pacific, you might it, it might not happen quite that way. <laughs> you wouldn't have a mutiny. Yeah. I think the the kind of you know there's a, a certain and like as nice as it is to look like looking at other people's um travel photos is infuriating basically it's, you know and and sometimes it can i think that's one of the aspects that's really hard to convey like i think you have to be doing stuff in 80 days because just describing how beautiful something is um mm. for several paragraphs just fills you with with resentment that you're not there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know and so a lot of the kind of I don't know great natural wonders where actually in real life if you were there what you do is just stare at it for a bit mm. we kind of have to create like oh I'm in a pickpocket stole something and I ran down the beach um, I think, you know, I think one, one drawback of game design is that we, we really can't jump cut yeah like we can't just say four days past which you know Vern does in his novel all over the place yeah. Um, so we always have to have something happening, even if it's just a game of whist or a dodgy look. Yeah, though I think some of the most fun things in the in in the game happen in those like sort of side side bits. Like I remember uh, when I just written all of this content um, in Timbuktu, and there's a bit where, or I think it's maybe the Trans Siberian Express, and and um, there's someone playing like a um, a ukulele or the, the local musical instrument. Um, and you'd just written one of those side bits, like those little bits of things that, that Fog says to you that I hadn't seen. And then I was you know, playing through the game and Fog goes, oh my God, Passepartout, put down that balalaika this instant. And you just... <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a really nice example of one of those little hooks between the story and the game that just yeah. really brings it alive, yeah. It just worked. It just worked really well, and it was so it was so funny, and just kind of made it feel as though there was stuff going on, yeah, outside of just the text that you're reading. Mm. All right, I'd like to thank you all so much for your time. Well, thank you very much. It's been our pleasure. Meg Giant, John Ingold, and Joseph Humphrey are all members of Inkle Studio. They worked on 80 Days. 80 Days is available on iOS, Android, and the PC. You're holding your hand right now. That's it for this week's show. I've been Armin Agbali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. Both the players made with the help of... Joseph Humphrey. John Ingold. And... Meg Giant. Follow us on Twitter. That's at built to play Or visit our website, builttoplay.ca. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and all social media, wherever social media is sold. You can follow me personally on Twitter. That's at Flarkon, F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And remember, the podcast is coming from inside your earbuds. Thank you so much for listening. That's just a fact. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>